0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David, February 13th, 2016. Arguably, One of the two, one of the three best Bloomberg View columns ever, ever, ever. Uh Cass Sunstein of Chicago, The Scalia I Knew Will Be Greatly Missed. I featured this for a week on Bloomberg Surveillance. It was just that good.
1: That shortly after uh, Justice Antonin Scalia passed away, after three decades uh, on the Supreme Court, uh, one of his sons, uh, he had nine children, has uh, compiled a new book with Ed Whelan. It's called Scalia Speaks, Reflections on Law, Faith, and Life, a Well-Lived, a collection of uh, the late justices' speeches that he delivered over the course of his career. And Christopher Scalia joins us now on our phone lines. Chris, it's great to, to speak with you. I have friends who have uh, clerked on the court and all of them, without fail, talk about the uh, the wit and intelligence uh, of your late uh, father, talk to us a bit about uh, his speeches. This is something that justices do uh, when the court is is not in session. They travel widely, travel around the world. I know that your father did uh, as well. How did he approach the, the speeches that he gave?
2: Well, first, thanks a lot for having me uh, for having me on this morning. It's great to be talking to you about this. Well, my yeah, as you said, my father spoke around the world over the course of his career, and of course, he, he delivered a lot of speeches to legal organizations. So we have about. 12 speeches in this collection, which are uh, speeches about my father's approach to the Constitution and interpreting laws. Those are, those are probably the most important ones, the ones where he really kind of um, uh, establishes uh, most clearly his, his jurisprudence, um, on which his legacy relies. But th- he spoke about much more than that. Um, and there are nearly 50 speeches in this collection only 12 of them are, are about originalism or textualism. So there, there are a lot of speeches. Uh, for example, there, there's a, a speech about turkey hunting here because he spoke at the Wild Turkey uh, <laughs> Federation event in Nashville one year. Um, there's a speech in which he described the games and sports that he played growing up. Um, there's a section devoted to his speeches about uh, religion and faith. So those speeches were very important to him. There's a, there's a great roast to Justice Ginsburg, and we included a number of eulogies and, and tributes. So, you know, he, he was a great speaker, so he was invited very often by many, many uh, organizations, not just legal ones. And that was one of the – I think that was the most fun part of uh, putting this collection together, was just seeing the variety and the range of what he talked
1: about. I imagine that you, growing up in McLean, had a lot of opportunities to watch him uh, work, to draft some of these speeches, to draft opinions uh, as well. How did he approach the, the job? Uh, we, we, we think of the, uh, the, the powerful uh, – the power that he had with words. I mean, his opinions uh, stand mm-hmm. out for, for that, uh, among other things. How did he approach the job?
2: You know, writing was hard work for him. Uh, I, I asked him once whether, whether it was easy, uh, because I like writing myself, and I kind of wanted insights from, from uh, how he approached it. And, and I asked him, is it easy for you? And he said, no, it's hard as hell. And that, that was a great relief to me. Uh, and there's a speech in this collection in which he, he describes his writing process and kind of how he learned how to write well. And he said the two, two of the most important factors are time and sweat just the time and sweat it takes to write clearly. And he made it look easy because because he put so much time into it. And I think that's a trait shared by many, many very good writers. So, you know, I would often see him work at hard work at work in his study uh, late at night, working on, this, on, on speeches or, or opinions and on weekends as well. Um, <clears throat> and that, I think that hard work really comes through with the clarity of what he, you mentioned in his opinions, but also his speeches.
1: We think of him as an originalist, somebody who was very true to the text of the Constitution. You mentioned how he formed his, his jurisprudence. Uh, give us a sense of how those two things complement uh, each other, uh, his, his, uh, his profound faith, uh, among other things, uh, his interest in opera, his interest in music. I, I think I read someplace that he was a, a fan of Ricky Skaggs and bluegrass music uh, as well. How did that all affect his thinking about the law?
2: Well, I don't know how those all come together to, to shape his thinking about the law. I, I do think that one misperception about him is that he, he, there, there was a tight combination or, or tight kind of intersection between his Catholic faith and how he interpreted the law. And I, I, don't, think that's, I don't think that's accurate because um, he thought it was important for judges to put their personal and including religious beliefs aside when interpreting texts. So as an originalist, he, he focused on the history and the text <clears throat> The traditions yeah. of the Constitution, um, uh, and not, you know, tried not to impose his personal beliefs on mm-hmm. on what it on what that said. And there's a speech in here called um, "Faith and Judging," where he lays that out pretty clearly.
0: Noah Feldman of Harvard, uh, which is a small school up to the north, has heard it. his dad did some time <laughs> there as well. Yeah, he <laughs> s- yeah. served <laughs> time there. Um, He's got a wonderful book called *The Scorpions*, which is about FDR's judges. What was the affinity right. of of your father to the tumult of the Supreme Court before him, before the Rehnquist Court? Uh, well,
2: I'm not sure what you mean by that. Kind of, are you asking what the relationship between the justices was like? What, or? Did, what did
0: he think of of the way the court shifted on the Douglas Court and on the courts before that? Of the oh, on think, Brandeis well, yeah, on I mean, the and on.
2: Yeah, as an originalist, uh he he has a lot of um uh yeah. sharp words for for the direction the court took uh, after World War II and especially during the uh the Warren Court because it it drifted towards uh, the living constitution approach which uh he he argues in a number of speeches here basically um uh, seizes control of the democratic process from the people mm-hmm. and puts it in the hands of the judges. So uh, he, I think he was instrumental. He wasn't the only person kind of pushing um, what he considered a move back to uh, traditional interpretations of the well, Constitution, but he was very, very influential in in returning the court to originalism. That
0: traditional interpretation is different than a body of thought in America that we don't need a judicial system. It just impedes everything we do as led by the president of the United States. What would Anton Scalia think of President Trump's administration?
2: My father uh, stayed out of uh, debates like that when he was on the court. He didn't didn't make comments about president's when he was on the court. So I think it's probably best I, I honor
0: that. Oh, uh, man. That well done. <laughs> thank, you, thank you. you went to Chris, Chris Scalia, you went to the David Gura School of Journalism. <laughs> <laughs> David, saved me here. Chris,
1: I want to ask you about one speech in particular. It's early on in the book, and it's the uh, Italian view of, of the Irish, and, and this is, <laughs> uh, as is the case with a number of the speeches in this book, uh, light at points. Uh, he's reflecting on, on what it means to be American, what heritage means uh, as well, um, but there is a dose of good humor as well. Tell us a bit about that speech in particular.
2: Well, that that speech was delivered uh, to um, I think the Sons of St. Patrick up in New York City. Uh, they invited him to give a speech, and uh, you know, obviously he was Italian, but his wife, my mom, Maureen McCarthy, was definitely not Italian. So, and, and he grew up am, uh, around a lot of Irish people as well. Um, so he and went to school with a lot of them. So uh, he likes to kind of poke fun at Irish people, uh, and, and in that speech, he, he kind of discusses some of their Distinguishing characteristics, like he, he says at one point, something like, you know, to us subtle Italians, the bluntness <laughs> of you Irish people is is very remarkable. Um, and he, he cracks a few jokes uh, about how you know how blunt my mother mm. was to him sometimes, and the way she, she used to make fun of him. I think that I think that humor is going to surprise a lot of people about this collection. I mean, mm. it's just, and people know that he was a funny person, but um, in these speeches, he's often laugh out loud funny.
1: He a Yankees fan, she a Red Sox fan, I read, uh, as well. Yeah. He's a man of Mick contradictions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a wonderful book, uh, Chris Scalia, thank you very much for for joining us. Uh, the book is Scalia Speaks, Reflections on Law, Faith, and Life Well-Lived, a collection of speeches uh, from Christopher Scalia's uh, late father, uh, Justice Antonin Scalia. Uh, it and was as Chris an important was saying there, forward. Yes, an important forward by uh, Justice uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and the two uh, justices were very good friends, uh, despite, as, as uh, yeah. many people know, the fact that their jurisprudence differs yeah. uh, greatly. Um, they maintained a great friendship and um, traveled to places, Uh, went to opera together, uh, ate together, uh, a really lovely remembrance of, of the late justice at the beginning of the book.
0: David, the gentleman from Chicago, is where?
1: Yeah, he's in Zurich today. Uh, there for a, a conversation, a moderated discussion. He took part in on the global economy and monetary policy. Our colleague uh, Manis Cranny sat down with him uh, as well for a wide-ranging conversation. Uh, let's head now to Zurich uh, to Manis Cranny, the anchor of Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, uh, in conversation with Chicago Fed President Charles Evans. Sir, we chatted about the IMF upgrading the growth
3: trajectory for the United States, and in your answer you hinted at. Manus, I thought tax reform will come. It's something that we thought about. I want to dig a little bit deeper. How important is it to sustain the growth in the United States of America to get tax reform from this administration?
4: Well, let me just make sure I get the context <clears throat> right here. So... Um At the beginning of the year, after 10-year Treasury rates went up, uh, as we were putting together a forecast, we made an assumption that the rates went up in part because the administration was likely to implement uh, more spending, tax reform, things like that. And so uh, that would support stronger growth, and so we added uh, a bit of that into our outlook and so we had uh, growth in the two and a quarter to two and a half percent range over the next couple of years now the way things have turned out we probably don't have as much of that in our outlook and maybe it's a little further into the future but basically the economy is pretty strong in the US and so there are a lot of organic reasons why I'm expecting growth of two and a half to uh, two and a quarter to two and a half and the global economy is better too as we were talking about so if we have that kind of an economy we've had some rate
3: hikes from the Federal Reserve, um, would you, how would you describe the Fed funds rate right now? Would you say, Manus, I think we are accommodative at the moment. How would you describe the status quo at the moment?
4: So I think that's right. I think, uh, you know, going back to uh, December 2015, we've raised the federal funds rate four times by 100 basis points. And so we're now targeting a range for the funds rate between uh, one and one quarter I think that's still accommodative. We still have uh, a ways to go in terms of getting inflation up to our objective. It's, uh, you know, disappointingly low, I would say. Core PCE is uh, under 1.5% year over year. I think uh, pretty much all of us are expecting it to move up. But I probably I'm thinking it's going to take a little bit longer to get up to 2% than uh, uh, many people. And so we might need uh, a continued accommodative stance. We're accommodative now. I think from here on out, every rate increase is going to get closer to that line where I'm not as sure that it's going to be uh, leading to inflation moving up. And so um, I think those are judgments that we have to uh, uh, come to before the next rate increase. From the data that you've seen so far, where do you stand on a December hike? You know, it's too early to say. I do think that... um, the inflation data have been disappointing. I understand. I've read the arguments. I've heard them that uh, it's likely uh, due to transitory factors. There certainly have been uh, a number of those in the U.S. I would say that uh, you know low inflation is a global environment, and so the whole world is dealing with transitory uh, effects. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm sure that the, there's some of that is true, too. I'm really nervous that inflation expectations are low. They've been low for Quite some time in our FOMC statement, going back to October 2014, we've been regularly calling out that market uh, measures of inflation expectations have been moving down; that they're low. They continue to be low, even though they bounced back a little bit after the election. And I think survey measures are also weaker than sometimes uh, we talk about. Expectations are incredibly important.
3: That the, the five-year, five-year, the forward expectations of where rates are going to go—that's a benchmark that I look every, right. a, every day when I when I pull it. Good. I'm glad I'm on the same page. How does the Fed push those expectations? What more should or could you do to push the expectations up?
4: Well, you know, this is a this is a big think question, really. You know, so this really comes down to how are we talking about meeting our policy objectives? I think that, uh, you know, we need to be uh, basing our decisions on um, outcome-based monetary policy. We need to be very clear. We are in telling everybody we are supposed to be supporting full employment and uh, price stability. Uh, the unemployment rate's uh, quite low at 4.2 percent. I think wage growth could be stronger. So I think we're you know pretty close to full employment, but if stronger wage growth would reinforce that idea better. But getting inflation up to 2 percent is something that's very important and moving inflation expectations up. Um, by just talking about it, making sure we 're willing to go above two percent if that you know actually happens because we 've got a symmetric inflation objective that 's my opinion. We do have a symmetric inflation objective. I think we should be willing to push inflation above two percent uh, because we should be spending some time above two percent just like we've spent quite a lot of time below two percent
3: can i Can I ask you Can I just push a little bit harder on that What is running hot evan style chicago style is it two and a half percent? Is it towards three? Is it the ability to,
4: to let it run, let it breathe? Well, I don't think we should fear two and a half percent inflation. If it's we're trying to get inflation up to two percent, we get there quicker than we thought. And we get to two and a half. Two and a half is not inconsistent with a symmetric two percent inflation objective. Uh, we should be spending time above two percent, just like we have been spending time below that. We should be averaging two percent going forward over some period of time. And uh, if we started from a higher than two percent uh, range, then we would be pushing policy to a slightly restrictive point and expecting it to come down over some period of time. And
3: um, you, you touched on, obviously, some of the other metrics there, which is the the. the unemployment rate the natural rate of unemployment how low how low can she go and okay we've about five minutes left so i don't think we're going to answer that question in the ne- in the ne- in the next 45 seconds but for you the propensity to get to four percent to get to sub four percent is there is there a risk if that keeps dropping
4: well i definitely you know, think that if the labor market continues to be very strong if unemployment continues to fall if it falls before below four percent That's a sign that there should be mounting inflation pressures. Now, we do have to realize that uh, the technical aspects of this, the Phillips curve is really quite flat. And so we probably won't see inflation move up very much. Because of that, you know, it might take something like 3.5% before you'd really see inflation pick up from uh, a strong labor market. But on the other hand, there's a risk there. And so I understand why, um, you know, we don't want to risk inflation uh, getting out of control. I would just say that if we're going to have a 2% inflation objective, we have to be willing to spend time above 2%. That might be, you know, 3.9% unemployment and inching the funds rate up gradually, the way that we've talked about. Can I ask you, the
3: the single most talked about topic, my colleagues in the United States have been talking about it before we came to talk to you, you and I touched on it, is succession, succession planning. So let's go at it a slightly different way. What does the Fed need in its next phase of leadership? You've lived under Bernanke, you've lived under Janet Yellen, you've also had experience of Greenspan in the room. Charles Evans, what does the Fed need in terms of leadership going forward for successful succession?
4: Well, I think we've been extremely well served by the leadership of the Fed chairs that we've had, the ones that you've mentioned. Um, I think we need thoughtful discussions. I think we need uh, committee members who bring uh, their best thinking to the table, different viewpoints. The viewpoint that I'm expressing right here is different than many uh, around the table, I think we benefit from everybody thinking, uh, what are the risk scenarios we might be facing? What is it that could lead inflation to be above 2%, Evans, when you say it's OK? How about this circumstance where you're going to be OK with that? Well, let's think that one through. Um, so we need to challenge each other. Uh, and so we need leaders and presidents so that we you know, have that give and take
0: discussion. Charles Evans of Chicago, a vibrant conversation, David Guru with Manus Cranny in Zurich on the dynamics of inflation.
1: And you, you know this better than, than I and, and Mike McKee does uh, as well. But uh, something interesting about Charles Evans is he has been at that institution for, for so long. His background is in research. He headed up research at the yeah. Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago as well. We've seen that in other banks uh, in he the, has, the system as well. How does that change the, the leadership of uh, the, the leadership role one plays when well, you have it, that it, institutional background? It's, it's
0: a big difference. And your, your point is well taken in that every president is different. Evans is so prodigious and so able – That he speaks with, as do others, a certain clip and directness, which is very different than the more politically based chairman, vice chairman, uh, and governors. He has an academic
1: clip and directness to Mr. Cranley as well. Directness. (laughs) There's a a
0: directness to Charles Evans, which has always uh, been there. Not that he's the smartest guy in the room, he's got a wonderful academic humility. But he's got a real belief in this strange word, expectations, I would suggest. Joining us, Michael Mayo, to get us started here at Earnings Season. Give us the 70,000 feet view, thumb up or thumb down on the profitability of banks.
5: Thumbs up. It, it's a two thumbs up. So, Tom, you, you know I've been covering the U.S. banks for three decades. I know.
0: You spoke to Hamilton personally.
5: <laughs> <laughs> but what's underappreciated you, – see, you lead with profitability, and profitability is improving. But what's underappreciated is the resiliency of the banks. This mm-hmm. should be one more quarter that should lead to one more year where banks are a lot more boring, where they don't blow up. right.
0: Are they going to distribute cash flow back to shareholders or is it more of a synergistic stock value play? Is it just financial engineering 101 three years out? It's a lot
5: more sustainable growth, not just growth. Um, You go back one Mm -hmm. or two decades ago, it was about market share. Now it's about returns and profitability that's sustainable. And what a contrast to 10 Mm -hmm. years ago.
0: I'm looking at operating income for J.P. Morgan, which is the size of the continent of Antarctica or whatever it is. Citigroup, not so much. And Citigroup does not have growthiness of operating income. Is Citigroup really a quasi-utility where they're just generating out the same operating income and let's play with it?
5: You know, the U.S. banks, it's less that they're managed like utilities, but more like their their output is more utility-like, more yes. annuity-like, more predictable. In fact, Agreed. for the third quarter earnings, which start tomorrow, we'd sum up the positives as the three Cs. And one C would be cost control, not just about revenues. Another C would be credit quality. The quality of the loan portfolios remains very strong. And the third C would be capital and capital return. This is the first quarter since the uh, June Fed stress test that allowed banks to return $100 billion of capital over the next Do year. Do you value
0: them on price to book then? I mean, we all understood five years ago they're trading at, you know, world's going to come to an end valuation. Citigroup, some vicinity of pr- priced to book. Should they be a premium to book? Do we get back to the, the joy that you and I knew in our ute?
5: Well, on that metric, it's a financial metric that we use to value bank stocks. The stock price relative to its book value, uh, bank stocks are still undervalued by at least one-third versus
0: historical go. ranges. There you go. David, That's I'm here end of the financial <laughs> lesson.
1: Mike Mayo, I've got your fine book to my left. That is Exile on Wall Street. And uh, you marked a 10th anniversary here. Ten years ago today, you were watching an exhibition game between the Knicks and a pro basketball team from from Tel Aviv. And the world changed, especially with regard to, to city. Tell us what happened then. And when you look at city then versus now, has this bank done a one hundred and eighty?
5: Well, ten years ago today, yes, October eleventh, two thousand seven. I'm sitting at Madison Square Garden, and I'm getting all these texts about announcements from Citigroup that then CEO Chuck Prince was firing a lot of people underneath him. Restructuring. Restructuring, and then Robert Rubin, ex Treasury Secretary, releases a statement saying that Chuck Prince will be around for many years to come. This is when the board was accountable to no investor that I'd ever spoken with. This is when Citigroup was sitting with a balance sheet with tens of billions of dollars of losses on subprime securities. And they're saying that everything's fine and everything's
1: dandy. Well, You go I, from buy, not to hold, but to sell.
5: Yeah, went, went to sell. The stock was over $500 a share. And we just thought completely out of touch. And for me, as I write about uh you know, in my book, this was the start of the financial crisis 10 years ago today. Well, as it turned out, one month later, Chuck Prince was out. The stock went into a free fall and Citigroup led the financial industry into the financial crisis. So, wow, 10 years ago today. Now it's 10 years forward. It's night and day. So as as relates to Citigroup, just like we said for the industry – the balance sheet is the strongest that it's been in a generation. Uh, the credit quality is strong. Capital strong. Liquidity strong. <laughs> There's a lot of eyes looking over the shoulder of Citigroup. A lot more resilient. We think they could survive mm-hmm. not just one financial crisis, but two financial crises. So a pillar yeah. of strength and stability. Still hasn't gone as far as they need to and i'm happy to talk about that too
0: you're going to be such a stud your entourage we could barely fit them into our radio studios you're listed in vanity fair uh, this month in an article on mr diamond of jp morgan have you talked to mr diamond about the value of bitcoin and is there a mike mayo view on bitcoin that won't get you in trouble won't get you thrown under the stagecoach
5: Well look, the banking industry, it's less about how fast can you grow revenues and how profitably and sustainably can you grow revenues. So part of that is improving efficiency. We think U.S banks will be the most efficient in history in five years. And crypto from now. will help on that. Well, it, you know the blockchain, the blockchain, underlying technology that, yeah. has the potential to help. It's not like flipping a switch, but that's one of many avenues that banks can okay. take.
0: Can you be long Bitcoin here?:
5: I. Uh, I I do not give a view. The horses uh, on the uh, uh, stagecoach just shook. I did not give you my disclosures on Bitcoin. You did not give me
0: your (laughs) disclosures on Bitcoin. Mike Mayo, uh, thank you so much for a quick visit here. We begin our earnings season. Of course, we take it as seriously. We'll try to do better than good and give you some of the uh, uh, information more than just revenue dynamics and earnings dynamics. And of course, talk to some smart people like Mr. Mayo uh, to give you that value add you expect only from Bloomberg Surveillance. Mr. Mayo is with the Stagecoach company, Mr. Wells Fargo. Are you enjoying it? I'm having
5: a great time. Week 14 yeah. so far. Yeah. Everybody wants to collaborate. Time you to and resources. Ken Center
0: are on speaking terms?
5: Ken Center, the new internet analyst at Wells Fargo Securities. He's a rock star. He's Mr. Future. Yeah. He came out with his launch. I he's, can't, sti- I can't believe
0: you and the Stagecoach on a four-hour trip to St. Louis. get right to it. Nick Heyman joins us from William Blair. Uh, Nick, we want to talk about the overall frenzy in your world of industry, but I've got to get a GE update. We talked to many others cautious. I would suggest you've been more optimistic on the timeline of restructuring for Mr. Flannery. Which is it? Have you amended your view on General Electric?
6: No. No, we have not we would uh, we would tom expect that the uh, the dividend would be an issue to be evaluated if we hadn't spent fourteen billion dollars and launched several new major projects. Uh, Products, excuse me, across all of the core uh, major businesses of the company over the last four or five years. So that's behind them that investment wave, and in turn, I think John's probably someplace in the neighborhood of uh, having made about eighty percent of the decisions that he has to make to structurally mm-hmm. change the board, the management, the portfolio, and the cost structure. So you know this is this is something that's moving at bullet speed, and um, yeah, I think that you know if you, unless you had uh, a world war. Or, you know, three, um, you're not really looking at a risk to the dividend.
0: On a strategic basis, is the task for the new GE management, is it what they need to do or is it what they need to avoid, what they need not to do? Which is it?
6: They, they need to what, what to get rid of or what to stop spending on and to bring focus to, you know, the spending they do uh, continue to make that generates mm-hmm. value. And so this is not a broken company; it's a bloated company. And those two are very different.
0: What's Nick Heyman famous for, David Gura? It would be compare and contrast yes, of Honeywell, this, this Matrix is very good. And GE, why don't you dive in here? Uh, Gura's is going for CFA level
1: half. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, he's really waiting no. in here right now. With, Do with, a uh, compare and contrast the with a legend. Yeah, this is this is a great comparison in the back. What can we learn from looking at these two companies side by side? Looking at Honeywell and looking at GE side by side.
6: Well, you know, Honeywell today is shifting gears and, you know, moving to change its overall um, sources of future earnings growth to have a much greater um, amount of organic revenue growth. And it's trying to figure out how to do that by being able to outgrow its end markets. And to do so, it's looking to take advantage of its hidden asset, which is a massive installed base. And to upgrade that with software to enable, you know, better functionality of those products and be able to connect them to be able to create real time insights and you know uh, it's it's a very interesting transition. So they're just simplifying the company. It's not broken at all. It's you know, one of the best, if not the best managed diversified industrials you know today in a, in, in the world. So um, it's a very different approach then obviously what GE's up against, Mm -hmm. which is to radically truncate.
1: You saw, of course, this announcement from Morris Plains uh, yesterday about uh, what Honeywell intends to do. Uh, It is not electing to spin off its aerospace uh, division. Do do you think it's likely to happen down the line? This is something that uh, Dan Loeb is agitated for. Uh, The statements that we saw from from his fund indicate that he's uh, content enough with what we saw uh, yesterday. Do you think something's going to happen to aerospace down the line?
6: No, I I, know this is a trend that we're starting to see, you know, where everybody's trying to unlock value by deconglomerating because equity valuations everywhere around the world are high. And these companies have become so big that in turn, you know, there's questions about whether or not um, they would have more value with, you know, better focuses on off entities. I don't think that you know the aerospace business is at all going to be spun out in some tax-efficient reverse Morris trust and then merged with GE, you know, engines or aviation yeah. or whatever. I don't, th- I don't think that's coming.
0: Nick is a part- I don't think it needs to. Is the party over? I mean, within the frenzy of restructuring Walmart, this, you know, industries and companies away from your expertise. Do you sense here that what this is really about is CFOs realize the party's over and they're going to have not cheap money anymore, that at some point it's actually going to get expensive? So it's like, let's get it done.
6: I think it's also, you know, we've got and there many changes going on. We've got this obviously in a move to create value now with, you know, uh, information, um, as opposed to just services, as opposed to software and the actual product, we've got structural changes that are sweeping across our end markets in transportation for autonomous operation of vehicles, and that's all kinds of vehicles, not just cars, as well as the electrification of the drivetrain. We've got you know the move to subsea as opposed to surface in the oil and gas, the shift to uh, electrification and renewables uh, in power generation instead of fossil and you know this Encroachment uh, by many of the aircraft manufacturers on their supplier base, both for services and actual products. So it's you know these changes are are really now what I think a lot of the management are trying to figure out.
1: Nick, I've uh, I've gone through the note with uh, with a highlighter and a pen, and something that I I made sure to mark was a line in your note saying uh, that GE happens to be one of the best backdoor beneficiaries from higher oil prices. Why is that the case? Uh,
6: they own sixty two and a half percent of Baker uh, Hughes. And um, uh, that has given them a huge opportunity to participate now in the North American upstream market that they didn't previously have. They were more of an offshore-focused market, and um, it allows them to participate in this next phase of improving return on invested capital for independent uh, North American energy producers by outsourcing all the service of their E&P assets and then bringing uh, Mm -hmm. their predictive seismic, geological seismic analytics so, they know where to frack within the vertical and horizontal uh, axis of the well.
0: That's way too much technology for me. Nick Heyman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. Too short uh, visits. Just can't say enough about the different, the value we get from different people on the street with decades of experience across industrial uh, marriage, uh, uh, industrial landscape. Mr. Uh, Heyman is with William Blair.